Hello and welcome again to Voices and Innovation from Giga Ohm. I'm your host, John Baldisberger, and with me today is Chris Grundeman. And we are going to be talking about something uh, you brought up in the last episode you were on, which is the broccoli technology of the internet. Uh, I latched onto that phrase, and as soon as we hit end on recording last time, I said, hey, let's do an episode about that specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to be back here. Um, yeah, so so the, the broccoli technologies, um, that phrase, I have to give credit to uh, Leslie Daigle, who is uh, an, an internet luminary, but was also uh, the former CTO um, of the Internet Society. And, uh, and she, she had a way with, with words. And uh, the, the, the team I ran at the Internet Society was called uh, Deployment and Operationalization, um, which also was, I think that's not a made up word, but it was definitely a word that was put into use uh, by Leslie. And she's the one who coined the term broccoli technologies. And, and the idea there was that they are, they're good for you, um, but not everyone wants to eat them, right? And, and so, and that, and that was a big part of what I was focused on while I was working at the Internet Society was, was helping to convince people to eat their broccoli, basically. And that's, look, I have a seven-year-old here. Uh, often in these episodes, you can hear her uh, in the background. She's a, she's a guest on Voices and in Innovation, but the idea that things are good for us, but not necessarily pleasant for us is not new in any industry. So just give me a brief, super high level. What is the broccoli of the internet? Yeah. So um, the things we were focused on, and one of the big things that I have a, a large background in, and one of the reasons that I ended up, you know, taking this position at the Internet Society was all around IPv6. Uh, so IPv6 is the next generation of, of the Internet protocol, right? And so for those who don't know, um, maybe if you don't have as much of a networking background, right? I mean, IP really is this kind of the skinny base or the skinny stem in this hourglass, meaning that because of IP, you can use pretty much any physical media you want, right? We can use wireless technology. We can use fiber. We can use electrical cables. Um, there's probably other ways that I'm not even thinking of, right? We can transmit stuff through space. Um, and then at the top, you can use all kinds of things, right? So, you know, UDP and TCP is, is one split, but like HTTP versus SIP, um, you know, all the different protocols and applications that we can have, uh, all of those things connect through IP at this middle layer. And so moving from IPv4, which is the previous version, the legacy version of the internet protocol, to IPv6 is a major shift. Um, the two things are not compatible with each other. They, they run as ships in the night. So you really have to run both until you can turn off IPv4, which is one of the reasons why moving to IPv6, you know, the, as, when, once everyone does it, then everyone gets to turn off IPv4. And so it's one of those things, it's a, you know, uh, tragedy of the commons type uh, interaction where um, it doesn't really pay you to be the first one to deploy IPv6. Uh, in fact, right, the benefit might be, you know, being the last one to deploy IPv6, because then you've delayed that cost the longest. And as soon as you deploy it, you can turn off your IPv4, whereas everyone else has to run dual stack in, in the meantime. And so that's one of those things where it's something that, you know, IPv6 is, is required for the internet to continue to grow and scale. And the sooner everyone does it, the sooner everyone can turn off IPv4 and stop having to worry about dual stack testing. Um, but there is expense involved, 
and you don't actually get, you know, any immediate benefit. Um, IPv6 connectivity is very similar to IPv4 connectivity. And so, you know, if, if connectivity is your old sole goal, then you're not really adding, you know, anything there. Now you are adding to scale of your network and the internet. And there's a lot of reasons why IPv6 is, is superior. And the main one just being there's enough addresses to actually connect all the devices. Um, and so that's, that's one really good example. I was working for a singular wireless AT&T uh, back when they made the switch from, I can't even remember what they called the network, but from that to edge and from edge to 3G. And it was a similar problem where your phone could do one or the other, but we had legacy customers that were still attached to the former thing. and half of our day was like calling people and saying like, Hey bud, your phone's not going to work <laughs> in about month. So, um, that I can definitely identify with that pain point. Yeah. Um, this might be a very basic question, but why IP four to IP six? So I don't actually remember the exact lore there, but there was some specification that used IPv5. There was a, so, some failed experiment, basically, that uh, they kind of, that number had been used and so they didn't use it and they kind of, it wasn't skipped over, but it was IPv5 was for something else. And I forget the exact use case. I, I'd have to look it up again. Um, but there was, there was something there that was called IPv5 and so they moved on to IPv6. When you're looking at the various technologies that are involved in the internet and networking, we we kind of talked about this when we were talking about uh, key criteria to table stakes, right? The things that are absolutely necessary and the things that, boy, howdy, we'd like to have. You say that IP6 is necessary for the continued growth and scale of the internet. How do you look at the technologies coming out and decide, okay, this is something we need. This is broccoli. This is, this has our iron and our protein. And this over here is sugar and food coloring. Yeah, that's a really good question. Right. So, so looking at some of the other kind of broccoli technologies that we worked with um, and that, that the, you know, deployment operationalization group at the internet society continues to um, push forward in, in the market and, and on the internet. Um, so one of the other ones is, is TLS, right? Or which is also commonly called SSL. SSL is kind of actually a previous version and TLS is all about uh, encryption. Um, and so, you know, this is something that by deploying TLS to every website, we increase the privacy of every user of the internet, right? And so there's a really big impact, um, not really much downside uh, other than potentially, um, you know, with encryption, there becomes some questions around law enforcement being able to do their jobs. Um, but I think the, the privacy implications outweigh that issue. Um, so that's another one, right? Uh, another one is, is DNSSEC, right? And DNSSEC is security for DNS, which is something that as when wild, widely deployed will prevent uh, spoofers from putting up like a fake, fake website of your bank and stealing your credentials. Or, or, or you know, there's lots of other ways to use um, DNS records and, and forgery of DNS records and intercepting those uh, to do bad things like, like spamming people and pretending to be someone you're not and defacing someone else's uh, brand or image online. And so DNSSEC is one of those things where there's this huge kind of community benefit from it um, versus um, 
other technologies, I'm trying to think of a good example of, of one that's a little bit more frivolous, and maybe not even frivolous, but like, so for example, uh, Google rolled out a new protocol called Quick, right? And so we're actually kind of moving from TCP to Quick in, in a lot of cases. And what that does is it makes, you know, web pages load a little bit faster, um, which is cool, but it doesn't quite have the same societal impact um, that encrypting all web traffic or encrypting DNS traffic or moving to IPv6 has on, on the overall you know, internet ecosystem. Right. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, reminds me of, of that famous quote about porn that, you know, the definition is hard, but you know it when you see it. And then I think the same thing is true with these broccoli technologies, right? When you think about something like IPv6 or TLS or DNSSEC or, or RPKI, uh, which is um, security for routing information, there's this other issue that happens online. BGP is the protocol that runs the internet and it works kind of by passing rumors along from router to router. And RPKI is a system that actually validates those rumors and makes sure that people don't, um, or routers, really not people, the routers don't lie about what routes are available through them. And so you don't have these um, mass outages that can happen when a BGP update goes rogue. Um, and so again, that's another thing where like you're, you're, you're deploying a technology that actually can prevent outages of wide scale outages on the internet, um, which I think clearly passes the sniff test of being something that uh, is good for all. Um, but then again, it's the same thing makes it broccoli that you know you have to incur some cost at the individual company level organization level to roll these technologies out and you don't see the benefit until everyone does it that makes sense speaking of porn uh <laughs> there's a trend where adult entertainment and video games which i guess is also adult entertainment uh in this day and age uh kind of lead the charge on a lot of technology. They decide where technology is heading. Uh, for instance, Blu-ray versus HDVD, uh, AR versus VR. The thing that allows people to engage in those entertainments tend to kind of be the way a lot of technology goes. So is there a industry that is helping decide where the focus on internet technology heads is there something like porn and video games for the internet other sure. than porn and video games right right um no it's a really interesting question and you're right i mean there there is this very interesting kind of sub narrative of the internet um which is that you know a huge portion of it was was built um kind of because of or at least funded by by porn right um and then you're right that's been a uh something that's happened through the course of, of technology history anyway. Uh, I would also point out uh, Betamax versus VHS, which is a little bit older decision, but, but again, VHS was potentially uh, won out for those same reasons. Um, and a lot of, you know, internet bandwidth and things like that was driven, at least early on, um, the, the kind of some of the first, um, one of my other friends, Kathy Aronson, was uh, instrumental in, in building At Home, which is the first cable internet. Um, service, right? So the first thing when you like we had dial up and then and then at home kind of was was one of the pioneers to bring us the cable internet and a big driving force there was people, you know, downloading videos. Um, so so I think that is one for the internet, right? And I think video gaming is is uh, also a continuing driver. I know that kind of the next potentially next big thing that's happening is, is VR games, as you said, and I think gaming is definitely going to drive the virtual reality adoption and bringing the cost down and, and bringing the adoption up. Um, Beyond that, I mean, I would say that uh, at this point, right, we've seen other more tame video become a big driver of internet, right? Netflix uh, was the, you know, largest 
bandwidth consumer you know, of a single kind of thing for a long time. I don't think that's quite, I don't think that's true anymore. I'd have to look at the, I haven't seen the latest uh, uh, reports on, on bandwidth things, but, but internet video and people watching Netflix or now the other options that are coming out, right? You've got Disney and, and a bunch of other folks kind of following suit and um, HBO and, and doing their own video streaming. And, and that's become a big driver. Um, and now, right, right now, very topical, I think a lot of people woke up to this idea of video conferencing, which is, um, which is interesting. It's one of those things where um, probably, you know, means I'm a, I would be a bad investor because I didn't realize how little that was adopted actually. Like to me, because I've worked for companies that were distributed and remote for a long time. And so to me, you know, using WebEx or Zoom or GoToMeeting or, you know, BlueJeans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I've, I've been doing that for years and years. And then when this pandemic hit and everyone had to stay home and, you know, Zoom just kind of blew the doors off everyone. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, you know, this, this thing is, is out there. Uh, that was surprising to me because like to me, it had been normal for a long time, but it definitely seems to be a driving force now when that be became um, part of how people really communicate with friends and family. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, video in general, but now especially two-way video uh, is probably one of those things that is really driving forward um, the way the internet is used uh, and adopted. To your point, uh, a lot of security holes were revealed in Zoom when their user base went from, I have no idea what the actual numbers are, but you know, it grew four or 5,000% almost overnight. And very suddenly we were all very aware that there were these security holes, mm -hmm. um, which like you said, drives things. The question I have, you mentioned encryption and DNS security earlier as being broccoli. What would that mean for piracy and piracy laws? Hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, there is definitely a, a push and pull. Um, uh, I think, I actually recently talked about this a little bit on, on a podcast that's gonna come out soon from, uh, from Gestalt IT on their on-premise uh, roundtable uh, about this, um, interplay between privacy and security. And I think one of the things that a lot of people fail to realize, um, at least the lay people, right, is, is that privacy, and even some of us as experts, right, is that privacy is not security. They're not the same thing. Um, and they're actually often at odds with each other. And, and that exactly what you're talking about is, is one of those areas where um, potentially, right, for the, you know, intellectual property rights and, and, and the security of kind of, you know, ensuring that things aren't stolen, um, encryption, which provides great privacy, actually gets in the way of pro uh, providing that, that type of security because you can't necessarily see what people are transferring around and what's going on out there, right? If there's encrypted files on a server and they're being you know, transferred, encrypted, um, that could be anything, right? It could be something illegal. Um, it could be, um, you know, whether it's pirated or some other kind of content that, that is, uh, you know, illegal and, and shouldn't be out there. And so there is that interplay between the two for sure. I don't know exactly how to solve it. Uh, I tend to fall mostly on the side of privacy, uh, personally. Uh, I believe that, um, that you know, being able to conduct your affairs in private is, is kind of part of what creates civilization um, versus just you know, living in a cave with everyone seeing everything you do all the time. Uh, we put doors on the bathrooms for a reason. And so I really believe that you know, privacy is, is this important thing. Um, at the same time, you know, that, that has to be balanced with um, you know, the knowledge that just as much as good people can use it, bad people can use it. I think it's uh, worth noting that oftentimes when 
a group is subjugated, one of the first things that goes is their doors, mm. or at least solid doors that you can't see through. Now, both you and I are authors. We both write. We both have intellectual property that have the uh, capability of being pirated. Mm. Uh, but at that time, both you and I also put a great deal of stock into privacy as being incredibly important. So I think that does say something. It is. And I think that's interesting from, you know, I, I kind of look at, at my writing um, similar to what uh, free and open source software developers look at, right? And, and I think that um, in a lot of ways, I mean, obviously, I would love to get credit for my writing. And, and when I can get paid for it, that's even better. Uh, but overall, I'm really trying to contribute to this global dialogue, uh, really, you know, adding, you know, consuming information, pro uh, analyzing it in my own personal way, and then kind of putting that new slant on things out into the world. And I think that's a similar way that developers look at free and open source software, which is that, um, you know, as long as you're contributing uh, to this overall growing pool of knowledge for humanity, um, you know, if somebody takes some of your ideas, that's actually exactly what you want them to do with them. I think that soon uh, you and I and Simon Gibson, who is our security analyst at GigaOM, need to sit down and really talk about what piracy means and how scary it can be and how sometimes actually beneficial it can be. Uh, on another show I do, I interviewed uh, a horror publisher about how he would pirate his own books and it would increase his sales and his uh his footprint in the community that said i'm <laughs> not condoning doing that right uh at all some people uh say that uh well i guess maybe i shouldn't name names but but there is a major publisher uh of, of movies and film that some claim pirated their own movie for for the press I think it's uh, it's definitely a possibility. It's piracy is inevitable, and as we've discussed a few minutes ago, uh, the line between piracy, uh, privacy, privacy and security is one that is a tightrope we have to walk. But we're not just talking about piracy today. We're talking about broccoli. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. What can a enterprise do to ensure that they're eating their broccoli? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and it's one of the things actually that interestingly that led me from working at the Internet Society uh, to end up back in the private sector working for Myriad 360. Um, because one of the things I found was that with a lot of these broccoli technologies, um, whether it be IPv6 or TLS or DNSSEC or RPKI or, or, you know, there's a few others that kind of fall in there. Um, the first people to adopt it were, were you know, folks who, who, one, had the leeway to be able to do that. So it was, it was a lot of small companies that were very technology focused. So they had smart people with time on their hands and the freedom to kind of do what they wanted. And so they went out and did these things because they knew it was right and, and, and probably got some press out of it too, if, you know, if, if they were a little bit more marketing savvy. Um, and, and then as you got you know, into deeper and deeper into the enterprise, and then, and then the other thing that happened is, is really big companies did it, right? So you saw folks like, like some of the big cable companies and some of the big telcos and the big content providers, um, especially on the IPv6 side, because they had to move to IPv6 to keep their operations going. And so they kind of wanted to kind of pull everyone along with them. So they were the next adopters. And where really a lot of it was stalling out was at the enterprise level. And, and the reason is, I think, 
is because of this whole idea of a return on investment, right? And, and as I said, I mean, that's exactly the problem with the, with the broccoli technologies and why there is, you know, a, a group of folks at an NGO out there pushing these technologies forward is because um, you have to pay up front for everyone to get benefit down the road. And, and that's not the kind of calculation that most enterprises do. Um, most enterprises are built to, to create profit now um, and to run profitably. And so they don't spend money on things they don't have to yet. And, and when they do spend money, they expect a return on it. And this kind of you know, long-term community benefit is not in the normal playbook for an enterprise. And so you know, for enterprises to, to eat their broccoli, I think what they have to do is, is look beyond that a little bit. Um, now, obviously, not every company is going to be in a position to be able to do that. Um, and maybe especially right now, if things are tight, it might not be the right time to do it. But there probably are ways where you know, there's very low-cost ways to plan for this. And so one of those things is, you know, if you know these technologies are things that will help everyone, even if you don't want to spend the money to like upgrade your whole infrastructure tomorrow, that makes sense, obviously, right? But, you know, over the past 10 years and over the next 10 years, you are going to do technology refreshes. And when you do, pick out equipment that has these things built into it so that when you go turn it on, it doesn't cost you anything, actually, right? So there's, there's ways, at least on a, on, a, you know, on a time deferred basis to make choices today that will lead to the outcomes later, right? So you can kind of, I guess, eat your broccoli very slowly. Um, which, which lowers the uh, the taste or uh, or the or the cost in this case. And I think another question that I would be asking, uh, obviously at GigaOM we put out a staggering number of reports on technology, and a lot of that technology revolves around the cloud, the internet, networking. Um, but we do, like I said, we do a lot of reports. How do you sift through everything out there and figure out what is the broccoli? Yeah, well, like I said, I think the broccoli itself, uh, you know, probably luckily, I guess, is, is a little bit more rare, right? I think these, these major technological shifts um, that really have this massive societal impact, um, they're just by definition not gonna be that many of those, right? Um, but what you can do, I think, is in, in looking at you know, all the other technologies that are maybe more kind of purpose specific, right? Fixing a certain job to be done or alleviating a certain pain point. Uh, you can uh, look at those and see how they support the broccoli technologies, right? And so you know, one of the things is if somebody's rolling out uh, a new virtual desktop infrastructure as a service offering, right? Does it run on IPv6? Uh, that's an easy question to ask as you, as you kind of dig into these things. And one of the questions I try to, to ask, right? And if somebody's putting up a new SaaS service, right? Does it support TLS? Is it encrypted? That one's pretty common now, actually. That one I think has been super successful and a lot of folks saw the value in that. Um, so most websites, most portals, most SaaS offerings uh, are, are, are using TLS, but it's still, still worth checking and making sure, right? Does that HTTPS address work? And does it have a valid certificate? Um, and then, you know, the same thing with DNSSEC and, and, um, and so you can look for these, these broccoli technologies in the more practical technologies that you need to deploy, right? Right, which all goes back to eating your broccoli slowly. As you get new services, new technologies, uh, new hardware, software, ensure that it has these things that are healthy for your, uh, for your enterprise or organization or whatever have you. Absolutely. So... One big kind of hot button issue, and again, time is fairly meaningless now in this quarantined era at the moment, 
uh, it feels like yesterday, but over the last couple of years, we've heard a lot about net neutrality. Uh, where does that fit in with broccoli technologies and the overall health of the internet? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so the way I would look at it is the broccoli technologies, obviously in the name there is technology, right? And so those are really, um, you know, specific protocols or, or maybe technical methodologies that can be used to enhance the um, use and, and ability to use the internet. Network neutrality is on the policy side, right? So, so there's not really any specific technology or, or, or protocol or, or anything like that that, that can, um, that just, you know, creates network neutrality. It's, it's much more a set of business decisions or a set of regulations um, to, to enforce businesses to follow. Uh, and so it does fit in, I think. I think that uh, has definitely been a debate um, for, for, for several years, and it's kind of gone both ways in the United States. We kind of swung one way and it swung the other way. Uh, I think that um, it's an interesting question, right? And it really comes down to this idea of, I think, of kind of common carrier and, and, and public access to the internet, right? And, and one of the things that uh, a lot of people who are worried about network neutrality worry about is ensuring that the door to innovation remains open. Uh, one of the greatest things about the internet, right? This, this kind of TCP IP stack of, of technology, um, it created this just, you know, it's the platform of platforms, right? It, it is this um, just, you know, almost now reaching further and further around the world, um, connectivity platform that you can kind of build other things on top of, right? And then Tim Berners-Lee came along and added the World Wide Web, which kind of added the HTTP piece. And so that's, a, you know, when we think of, you know, that's another layer on top of the internet and there could be a totally different one at some point, right? Maybe one built on, on virtual reality. I don't know, that's still a little weird to think about, um, but possibly there's virtual worlds instead of these web worlds. Uh, and, and, and even within, you know, the web itself, right? There's new SaaS offerings, um, new web pages, that kind of thing, and, and, and new technologies, right? Like at one point, SIP was new. And, and there's all these other pieces. And so ensuring that, you know, someone in their garage or in their basement can, you know, create something new and stand it up on the internet and have people be able to consume it. I think that's the most important thing is just making sure that door to innovation remains open. Um, and I, I, but I do think that that is, so, so you, you end up with this idea of net neutrality, while not necessarily technical, is a technical enabler in many ways. Very cool. You know, at the end of the day, in my, in my time, you know, I remember using ICQ uh, in college and downloading MIDI versions of songs uh, and getting just tons of viruses in the process, moving all the way to being able to talk face to face with you, record it in real time. Uh, and that's due to people eating their broccoli. It's due to keeping innovation open and continuing to push the boundaries of not only what we can achieve, but how we protect what we are achieving. So we don't currently have a report out on this on gigaohm.com, but as soon as you kind of mentioned, I wanted to talk about it because it's incredibly important uh, and obviously something you're very passionate about. I am. I am. I am really passionate about it. And I think, you know, I caught this bug for the internet early on in my career and it just, I've never been able to shake it. I, I really believe uh, in the power of the internet as a global communications medium, right? I mean, with, uh, with a library, you're able to have access to, you know, the world's information. 
And with the internet, you're able to contribute to the world's information as well, right? It's this two-way piece that you know, no other real kind of form of, of media that we've had in the past was, was this way. Um, you know, writing a book and reading a book were very, very different. But, but as you said, us talking live on video right now is, is very participatory and very two-way. Um, you know, writing a blog and reading a blog becomes very similar type of, of activity. And, and so you know, it's almost um, telepathy at a global level where we're connecting the minds of humans all over the planet through this medium and I think, you know, ensuring that it continues to grow and continues to stay free and open uh, is super, super important. Well, everyone, you've heard it here. Uh, Chris Gundeman suggests that you eat broccoli so that you can join the hive mind. Uh, all joking aside, obviously, this is important stuff. Uh, and keeping informed about it is incredibly important. I highly recommend you check out Chris online. You're on Twitter and you have a website. Do you want to let us know about those real quick. Yeah, absolutely. So just at Chris Grundeman uh, is my Twitter handle and chrisgrundeman.com is, uh, is the website. So uh, a Google search, you'll be able to find either one of those. And you'll find both of those in the links on the show notes. But obviously you can also go to gigaohm.com and check out the vast library of research, blogs, and podcasts that we have there. Uh, I'm John Baltusberger. Eat your broccoli. And this has been Voices in Innovation from Giga. Ciao.